Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, your source for breaking news, business trends, and economic forecasts here and abroad that impact one-third of America's economy. And now your hosts, Lou Weiss and Tim Grady. And welcome to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. We are excited today, Lou, to be talking to two guests about a trillion-dollar problem when we get into just what that means in terms of counterfeits that are in the manufacturing supply chain and delivery chain. So uh, these are two people that you had uh, found uh, with the help of our, our, our producer, and you've had some interesting conversation with them. I'm sure you're fired up to talk to them as well. And actually, uh, uh, Rosemary Coates has actually been on our show before, uh, so she she knows how good we are. And uh, uh, Imran, I did have a conversation with Imran and Rosemary the other day, really interesting people. Uh, we've never really touched on the uh, counterfeit uh, issue, uh, and it's really huge money. I mean, this is not pocket change. So when do no, we get? Not. When do we get to it? You know, when you said a trillion dollar problem, I was thinking in terms of how do you spend it fast enough. But that's not what you were talking about, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so let me introduce our guest, Rosemary Coates, who's executive director of the Reshoring Institute, and Imran Baco, who is managing attorney for Nexio PC. Uh, Rosemary and Imran, welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thank you. Thank you. Well, just to start things off, and I'm going to kind of let the two of you decide who should answer what, since you're the experts. I guess, uh, Rosemary, you're very skilled in supply chain, and obviously, um, Imran, you are uh, a very knowledgeable and skilled attorney. So, how big a problem are we talking about? Well, it used to be that, uh, say, 10 or so years ago, 15 years ago, uh, the rise of counterfeits was becoming uh, sort of creating some awareness uh, in global supply chain as well as in global distribution channels. And we knew it was there. And, you know, at the time, counterfeits were kind of cheap knockoffs, that sort of thing wasn't all that alarming uh, but then uh, counterfeits started entering the supply chain and uh, became so much better particularly in electronics that they were almost indistinguishable in today's marketplace in the world uh, the uh, there's a European organization for economic cooperation and development that estimates uh, that the problem is about somewhere around $2 trillion that are known counterfeits. In fact, what they say is about one in, in 20 uh, products that are being imported into the U.S. are counterfeit. One in 20. And those are just the ones that uh, we know of. So, you know, there are many more that are probably unknown. And um, so it's just become a huge issue and the counterfeiters have become so good, it's just almost impossible to tell a counterfeit from a true part. Well, does that make it performance? Does that make that an impossible problem to solve? 
Well, from a supply chain perspective, no. I mean, you, you do have an opportunity to solve it, but, you know, it's an area where we're working on and attempting to <laughs> identify these counterfeits and counterfeiters and what to do about it. And if you uh, couple that with the complexity in the global supply chain now with uh, companies changing locations, uh, moving out of China, moving to other countries, well, it becomes this sort of whack-a-mole problem where uh, you think you solve one problem and then, you know, something else pops up. And uh, Imran, you might want to speak to the, the brand protection side, the finished goods side a little bit too. Sure, certainly. So, so there was a question that came up as to how dangerous or how problematic is this, uh, you know, our counterfeits out there. Uh, hugely so. Hugely so is the answer. At the surface level, uh, you know, a lot of the products can appear similar. They can. Uh, but at a functional level, there will be massive differences in, in product quality. And, you know, this can be seen, you know, in rather – what, what, innocuous may not be the right word, but you know, in in lower risk profile goods such as like you know counterfeit watches or whatnot, or it could be in you know in different segments where the the effects could be massive. That would be pharmaceuticals, tires, and and one could imagine how big the fallout would be in those industries. Uh, you know, I think it's also important to note in the statistics that we provide to you that this is an opaque market. And a lot of the organizations that have developed uh, estimates as to the size are, are, are precisely that. They are estimates, and, and Rosemary is on the nose when, when she says that there are probably a lot more out there that, uh, that aren't even being recorded. And, and frankly, in my enforcement work over the last close to decade, th this is a chronic problem that we see. And, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, it's a lot of manufacturers out there, particularly dealing with finished goods, tend to want to sweep this problem under the rug. They, they don't want it to be known that there are counterfeit versions of the products that are out there. And I think this, in large parts, contributes to, uh, you know, the diminishment of the statistics that are out there. Well, Imran, I, I want our, uh, our listeners to understand the risk here because it's not just somebody replacing bubble gum or chocolate bars these could be electronics and aviation equipment for our own fighter jets and some of our uh, electronic aviation equipment does source in china for the f-35 uh, and in commercial aircraft is that correct Th that's correct i mean the ultimate output could be death um, it, it could be widespread damage, property and otherwise. Um, there are a large number of reports of consumer goods that are out there, which, um, particularly in the electronic space, uh, which will randomly burst into flames. This happened with those hoverboards not, not that long ago. Uh, it happens with toothpaste uh, that were, were lead, lead-lined. I think Colgate came out with an article a while back. I mean, the, the health and uh, safety implications are massive. They, they're not to be marginalized whatsoever or minimized. And not only not only that, but uh, in the pharmaceutical area, <clears throat> you're talking about life and death. And uh, just uh, a quick uh, side story: uh, a friend of mine, a friend of mine, went and bought uh, Viagra that was uh, turned out to be manufactured in India, 
And uh, we said, what are you, crazy? I said, throw that stuff away. He said, well, no, it's real. It's, uh, look at the packaging. It's, it's perfect. I said, throw it away. So he didn't. He didn't throw away. He didn't take it. He gave the package to a friend of his. And two nights later, he took a Viagra, had a heart attack, and wound up in the hospital. So, yeah, it's uh, needless to say, he's never lived that story down, and we've been teasing about it ever since. Uh, But it is a life and death uh, issue. And uh, and even when you you know... even when I, you know I was just going to add that, yeah. when, you know, um, so pharmaceuticals are certainly, you know, a big risk, but electronic parts are in everything. I mean, every time I get onto an airplane and I travel a lot, I always sit down and think, holy cow, I hope there aren't counterfeit parts on this airplane. <laughs> um, because, you, yeah, you know, right. it's, it's, it's um, as I said, they're almost indistinguishable in products. And in addition to that, while it may look the same and pretty much act the same when you buy it and so forth, you have no idea when it might fail. Will it fail earlier? Is it going to not interact properly with other parts? I mean, when you you think of the new Max planes, they have an integration uh, problem where, you know, the software isn't tested properly or won't uh, interact with other parts of the airplane. So if you think there are counterfeits uh, involved in in an p- airplane like that, it's likely to cause an eventual failure, and uh, and you know obviously that's you know super risky not just for airplanes but for all kinds of equipment that has electronics. Um, Rosemary Imran brought up an interesting point, and and that is that the people involved in this and and it may not be just manufacturing, but we always talk about manufacturing and could be in the supply chain, don't really want um, their customers or the public to know that there's a problem because obviously it shakes the resolve in the brand. What are supply chain people doing about it? Yeah, so so upstream, which is mostly where I work, so in the, in the supply chain and, and global sourcing and then, uh, in the manufacturing side, uh, the, there is no substitute for uh, effective control over your supply chain. So you know, it used to be that we'd uh, offshore something or source from a global brand and you know bring it in and test it and it looks good and it tests fine and so forth. Um, but these days, you have to be on the road and overseeing what's happening in the production of part, parts around the world. Um, or have designated some agent, say a, a, an agent in China, to oversee the factory there. Um, because if you don't, you're likely to find that the factory is going to substitute component parts, raw materials, chemicals, uh, and, and that may result in a product that looks okay. And the initial tests are okay. But as I said before, you know, it may fail early or uh, may not interact properly with other parts. So worrying about that. So the only only remedy is to validate who you're buying from. So is this a legitimate factory? Um, do they have a good reputation? Can you, you know, verify their references? But also have oversight into what they're doing. Um, I'll give you an example. I um, Imran and I work together. Um, I'm an expert witness on uh, legal cases, and he's the lawyer. We worked together on a, a, a few things in the past. 
But when I'm working as an expert witness, I've come across all kinds of cases where there was substitution happening. So uh, uh, a you know a chemical makeup for a finish. Um, uh, you probably recognize uh, this one where there was a flooring company uh, that makes wood floors, and they had uh, products being shipped from China. And the finish uh, had specs, and they were overseeing the suppliers in China. And then, unbeknownst to uh, the buyer in the U.S., uh, the Chinese manufacturer substituted chemicals, including formaldehyde. Uh, and they put some formaldehyde into the finished products. And then, ultimately, when they came to the U.S., were installed in people's houses. The formaldehyde off-gassed, and you know they had an issue. They had a, they had a big class-action suit as a result. So if you're not overseeing that plant and you're not validating every part of that manufacturing cycle in a foreign location, you're opening yourself up to risk. And the other thing I would say is that because so many companies are now moving out of China, uh, so are the counterfeiters. <laughs> so they're they're moving right with them. <laughs> so, you know, Counterfeiters are now in Vietnam or India or Indonesia, and uh, in those places, there's even less control over what happens in a manufacturing environment uh, and That's less protection from the local laws and so forth. Yeah, it, you know, once you dig into this counterfeit problem, you're right. It is very scary. What is it, the – uh, I, I was going to ask, what is the uh, – uh, the legal aspect of capturing or uh, uh, suing these uh, counterfeiters and how successful is the uh, uh, protection of the brand uh, or is it a very small number and it's only going to get worse? I I guess this is an Imran. Yeah, excellent question. Uh, So the really two different methods from a legal side to to deal with counterfeits. One is on the criminal law side, and the other one is on the civil law side. And I think the two work well in conjunction. And and to kind of shortcut the answer, and then I'll give you a little bit longer explanation. Um, The It's like a filtration process. So the criminal folks you know, dealing with either, you know, the customs and uh, border protection agencies, you know, provided that they're well-trained, will often filter out a large segment of the counterfeits that are flowing into the country, specifically if you can flag specific suppliers. And this is where Rosemary's work, you know, comes in so handy. Um, So, you know, if we're able to identify several of the suppliers upstream, the customers in Bureau of Protection, the CPB, will will often filter out a lot. Beyond that, you're dealing with local law enforcement who will, you know, often knock down a a larger percentage. That leaves the remainder, and the remainder is often handled on the civil side. And that's kind of a combination of IP laws in general um, that can be used, but most specifically, there is a statute under the Lanham Act, which covers a lot of the trademark goods, and that statute is uh, 15 U.S.C. 1117, and that civil statute basically provides for a few different remedies against counterfeiters. The first one is civil penalties. 
Uh, most often, these counterfeiters act kind of in a, a black box. It's very hard to ask them, hey, you know, Mr. Counterfeiter, how many uh, of these uh, fake Rolex watches have you brought in? Well, I brought in one. Well, you know, everybody knows <laughs> that's nonsense. Um, so, so the hey, statutory scheme has been developed instead that allows for civil remedies that allows judges to kind of pick um, how egregious of an actor these counterfeiters are. So the, the judges will be allowed to pick awards anywhere from $1,000 minimum per copy uh, per counterfeit uh, item imported all the way up to $2 million. And uh, uh, to clarify, um, that's, uh, that's per mark. It's not per item. So if you know if a company out there has several brands, you can see that these numbers can rapidly escalate. In addition to that, you get the, you know, the injunctive relief, which again you know follows up with some criminal enforcement. There are destruction ordinances that are in place. There are seizure options that are available, and that's why sometimes you will hear about in the news you know raids occurring on different factories, and, and that often will occur as a combination of either criminal or, or civil enforcement. And, and frankly, the, the close to the two are tied together, um, you know, the, the better the results are. And, and, and the truth of the matter is that, you know, it's a problem that never quite goes away. Um, you know, there's always an economic incentive for counterfeiters to come in and sell a $1,000 product or $2,000 product that they can make overseas for a couple bucks or $10 or $20. But you can significantly reduce the impact. And a combination of tools that have been you know, developed on, on the legal and um, uh, side as well as some other technological tools that are out there help help manufacturers significantly suppress this problem. Uh, you know, in, in our experience, you can go from a problem, let's, let's just use arbitrarily, a 100% problem, you can get it down somewhere in the neighborhood of 3 to 5%. Uh, it, it, but it's an ongoing maintenance problem. So it is solvable, but there, there are certainly ongoing efforts that are required. So let me ask you, on the, the number that was mentioned at the early part of the show, that the uh, amount of counterfeit parts is somewhere around $2 trillion uh, this year, um, is that the net, or is that inclusive of all those who have been tried, convicted, and fined? Or is this the part that we haven't caught yet? Excellent question. Uh, the way that both the OECD and the GBCR, who are both organizations that do this estimation process, will take this as a gross number. This includes both the caught and uncaught. And, and again, it's important to, to mention these are just, you know, good faith and I think in large part conservative estimates. The problem is sure. much larger. Sure, sure. Well, Imran, um, this might be a question for you or for Rosemary. Um but there are really two parts to manufacturing. There's the supply chain coming into the manufacturer, and then the good or part or component is produced, and then there is a movement of the goods from the manufacturer through the distribution channel out to the next person in line, whether that's the consumer or a downstream OEM or whatever it may be. Uh, some time ago, we talked to another brilliant attorney, uh, Adriana Sanford, about blockchain. And blockchain was supposed to be the answer in the distribution side to keep track of your products so that you couldn't have switch outs somewhere in the distribution channel. Imran, has that ever 
come to be anything, or was it a lot of talk about nothing? You know, I, I, I'm always reluctant to, uh, you know, disparage any any uh, thought process. I, I certainly think that there is a, there is value to, to blockchain, but in my experience, uh, un unfortunately, the the complicit members in in the uh, chain of distribution of counterfeit products will include people that are in the distribution as well as outside the distribution chain, and absent having some technological, you know, hook that would require authentication of, of, of uh, you know, blockchain uh, to either assemble or to use a product, I, I think it's fairly easy to circumvent. And I'll give you an example. Um, let, let's take that Rolex watch, for, for example, because I think that's just the most iconic thing in most people's mind. And, you know, it, incidentally, Rolex has done an excellent job of, uh, of limiting the number of counterfeits uh, domestically. We, we can talk about their international efforts in a separate conversation, but you know, with that being said, you know, the the, the blockchain. How do you get a a manufacturer overseas to somehow use the blockchain in relationship to the distribution of this of, uh, of a counterfeit Rolex or a fake Rolex, particularly one that's sold on a street corner or you know in a in a sh in a non technologically advanced shop on a, on some store corner in some city in the United States. You know, particularly those folks that are still using the written pad to write down what their sales numbers are in an old cash register, right? How, how does the right. blockchain solve those problems? Well, it and I, I have an opinion too, and, and uh, you know, blockchain, I live in Silicon Valley, so blockchain is a constant subject of discussion. Um, you know, everything that you go to around here and you meet up, that kind of thing, blockchain almost always comes up. The problem is, as I see it, is that it's great and it will uh, will certainly track the handoffs between suppliers and uh, other supply chain partners, uh, freight forwarders and carriers and warehousing and so forth. But if you have a an inexpensive uh, product, let's say you make uh, adapters for laptops, uh, you know, uh, the plug-in part, right? Um, and you make those for eight bucks or five bucks in China. Are you really going to engage blockchain and pay for that service? Because it's not free. It's not just like out there and you use it. Um, you know, there are you have to subscribe and there are fees associated with it all along the way for the entire supply chain. So, you know, I think it depends on the value of the good. And certainly, if it's very valuable, like a Rolex, you would do that. Um, but you know, most parts aren't that. Way right, they're inexpensive, and you're just not going to engage in complicated or expensive processes to, to check them. The other thing is too, um, and let's take that example of laptop adapters again. Um, you know, an adapter that comes with your uh, laptop may be like a brick; right? it's heavy and so forth. And since I travel a lot, you know, I, I went online um, uh, on Amazon and bought an adapter that I knew was not brand, it was not the brand, which was obviously some kind of electronic knockoff or one that was from the gray market, and I knew that, and I bought it anyway. <laughs> I, I didn't care whether right. it's something that was lighter weight and, you know, could could fit into my bag. So I think, you know, in a lot of cases, consumers are quite aware that they're buying knockoffs or 
uh, cheaper products or whatever, and um, and that's what they want. You know, we're looking for price or some other functionality or some other attribute, and not so worried about the individual brand. What? Excuse me. What can a, a manufacturer do? Uh, let's take a, a company in uh, in Chicago. They manufacture whatever, and what could they do to uh, protect themselves uh, and be even aware of the the width and breadth of the counterfeiting world that they are subject to having their parts knocked off and they won't even know about it. Yeah, I, let me take the front end of that, and then Imran can, can talk to you about some of the, the actions that we promote. But on the front end, you know, very often the manufacturer does not know that there are knockoffs out there uh, until they pop up somewhere. So, you know, here, here's another thing that happens is a lot of small electronics or consumer goods may have a trademark violation or uh, maybe, you know, counterfeit product that's made at a different factory or even the same factory. So a lot of Chinese factories, um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but, you know, they do brand produ uh, production during the day and then at night or on the weekend or once a month, they have a whole another run overnight of uh, what we would call gray market goods that are made on the same factory line from the same stuff they just don't have the brand uh, put on the actual item. Uh, and th those are brought in, maybe branded in the U.S. and sold through eBay or, uh, you know, Facebook ads and, and so forth. So the distribution channel um, facilitates that, and the manufacturer may have no idea that this is going on until they find, they stumble across one or uh, somebody returns an item to their factory that they think is under warranty and the factory will look at it and go whoa this isn't our product where'd you get it you know it's got our it's got an hp label on it or it's got a, a bmw label on it or something like that and it and yet um uh, and yet they have no knowledge of where it came from and then imran you can take it from here and how you would pursue that when it happens Sure. No, and absolutely. And, and, and Rosemary is a hundred percent correct. I, I think it it all starts at at the upstream in the supply chain, um, and then coming downward. I kind of look at this like a filtration process, and you know, the more filters that you have in place, the, the fewer number of counterfeits actually get to the get to the end users that are out there. But generally speaking. Um, you start off by ensuring that you have a, a solid IP portfolio, your, your patents, your copyrights, and your trademarks all active, all registered with the CPB. Uh, and then beyond that, what you're, you're looking at is establishing strong policies and agreements with all of your distributors, both um, you know, at, <coughs> at the intermediary level as well as farther downstream so that you know each one of these is tied to a specific policy of what they can and can't do with very strict uh, agreements and, and strict conditions and stri strict consequences if they fall outside. Uh, beyond that, you're looking at kind of an amalgamation of uh, pulling data together from a bunch of different sources into a database to ensure compliance. And we tend to use um, three or four big ones. The first one would be like a partner recon model, um, you know, kind of a self-policing model. The second is, uh, you know, throwing private investigators to the 
every so often uh, to just do compliance checks. A big one often overlooked is you know, constantly scanning the returns uh, of the manufacturer. That will often unearth a, a lot of new counterfeits coming to the market. And then there are a lot of third-party technological tools um, that do brand monitoring, you know, companies like uh, Yellow Brand, et cetera, et cetera, who will, you know, use some rather rudimentary tools to scan the Internet and whatnot. And through a combination of these sources or filters, you're able to knock down uh, the number of counterfeits that are, you know, in the marketplace. And then anything that get past all those filters, you, you know, you move to the legal process, which you know, can be sometimes involved and, and sometimes, uh, you know, they're, they're quick resolutions. So, um, you know, through that strategy, you're able to cut this, as I mentioned earlier in the conversation, if the problem was, let's say, 100% down to something like 3 or 5 4 or 5%. And, and frankly, you know, not all manufacturers are capable of doing all of this, and there are customized solutions that, you know, can be put in place where you're just dealing with a few of these things and maybe you're closer to 6 or 7% or 8%. It's just a question of what is the tolerance and, and how much are they willing to let go through. Well, I am sure that there are a lot of listeners and manufacturers out there, and we've already determined that they may or may not know uh, that their parts are being counterfeited and or what to do about it. So I would suggest uh, at this moment, uh, why don't you give us uh, your uh, names of your company and your email addresses uh, of both of you and uh, make it available to our listeners so that they have someone to fall back on who knows what they're talking about. And you certainly seem to know what you're talking about. So, uh, Rosemary, why don't you go first with that? Sure. So, my email address is rcoats, C-O-A-T-E-S, so rcoats at reshoringinstitute.org. And you can also call me at 408-605-8867. Good. Imran? Uh, certainly. Uh my name is Imran, spelled I-M-R-A-N, last name V-A-K-I-L, uh, and I spelled that out because uh, it's a, the next part of the communication will <laughs> sometimes lead to, to a few misspellings, so feel free to look me up online. But my email address is I-V-A-K-I-L at Nexio, spelled N-E-X-I-O-L-A-W dot com. And uh, my phone number is area code 949-478-6830. I'm happy to answer any questions that uh, anyone might have. Okay. That's, uh, we, we hope that uh, our listeners uh, got all of that, and uh, uh, hopefully they'll be able to reach out to you. And uh, I hope that they're not uh, the one in 20 uh, that is having their parts uh, uh, counterfeited. Uh, this is very interesting and uh, shocking uh, to boot. Um, so uh, if, if if in the future things progress or change or evolve uh, and uh, you have additional news and information in the progress of uh, uh, the counterfeiting reduction due to uh, laws and uh, uh, so on, please Give us a contact, and we would love to have you uh, back on the show uh, because uh, $1.8 is not 
pocket change. Certainly not. Uh, and uh, Chairman Lou, we, we likewise want to thank you. Uh, I think it's wonderful that you put together such great programs that allow such valuable information to get out to your listeners. So thank you for the time and thank you for the platform. Yeah, thank you. You're quite welcome, and we appreciate your uh, thanking us. Tim? And we have been speaking with Rosemary Coates, who is the executive director of the Restoring Institute, and Imran Vakil, who is managing attorney for NextJO PC. And if you want to get a hold of either of them and somehow that it you know, slipped past you, please visit this website, mfgtalkradio.com, and look up this show, and you can get the information on both of these brilliant people who are working to solve Rosemary Coates on the supply chain problem and Imran on the legal side, your issues with counterfeits in the supply chain. And that wraps us up for this section of Manufacturing Talk Radio. We always look forward to having our guests back when something changes, as we mentioned. And please visit our website, mfgtalkradio.com, for all of our shows, over 300 now and headed to 400. We also have other shows that we have out in the universe, excuse me, Manufacturing Matters with Cliff Waldman and Women in Manufacturing, which is a series of interviews, all that can be reached through Jacket Media Co. or mfgtalkradio.com. Again, thank you for listening to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.